John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17 is our passage for tonight. And I'm so excited about getting into this particular passage. It's just so loaded with truth, so loaded with helpful instruction from our Lord Jesus. And I hope that, as our brother said, you have been enjoying the Upper Room Discourse uh, this summer. Uh, What a wonderful privilege we get to hear from the heart of our Lord Jesus and those things that were most precious to him, of course, as he interacts with his disciples and he prepares them for what is to take place. Remember that this discourse happened over a Passover meal with Jesus' disciples in Jerusalem in this upper room. And it's there that he washed their feet in a great act of humbling of these disciples who were unwilling to do that themselves. He loved them to the max. He loved them to perfection, it says. And he washed their feet. He transitioned them from the Old Testament Passover to communion, if you remember. All of that has taken place in the upper room. He revealed the traitor, Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot catapults out to go do his um, uh, rebellious act against the Lord Jesus. He's comforted his disciples, as we saw last week, and we delved into that as the good shepherd by reminding them of their future with them, with him, and as well as the blessings that they have with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so slowly, these disciples are beginning to understand the weightiness and the heaviness of the moment all the more. They're beginning to understand that Jesus is not going to be with them very much longer, but in his absence, nevertheless, They will have some work to do. He's made that very clear throughout his ministry with them as he's trained them. And so this might seem very daunting for them that they have work to do post-Jesus dying. But this is what Jesus has prepared them for. And as Jesus gets ready to depart, he teaches them how they might live a victorious life in our passage here. And how they might fulfill the task that Jesus is leaving them here on earth to do. How does he do it? Well, being the master illustrator that he is, I'm sure you've studied this this week, he uses this imagery of a vineyard, which they would have been very familiar with this imagery of a vineyard. In fact, in the Old Testament, if you remember, and you've been doing your Old Testament uh, Bible reading, and all of us have been doing that. Yes? All right, all right. I only saw about half heads nodding right now. But for those of you who have been doing this, you know that Israel was often referred to by Yahweh as the vineyard of the Lord. The vineyard of the Lord. And the New Testament times, vineyards were all over the place. Almost anywhere that people walked, there were vineyards. You either owned a vineyard or you labored in a vineyard. And so people knew the basic components of these plants. They understood that there was a a vine which was the most vital element of the plant. Without the vine, there was no life, no energy, no strength, no fruit without the vine. It is the life source of that plant, the vine itself. They understood that there were branches and that amongst these branches were were fruitful branches that were alive and, and productive because they were attached to the vine and they derived their strength from the vine. These were healthy branches. And they understood also that they were unhealthy, unfruitful branches. This is why they needed a vine dresser or a vine grower whose job was to, to basically inspect and to purge and to prune these branches. The vine dresser would, would purge or remove unfruitful branches that hadn't borne the, the, the proper fruit in the previous harvest season. These were useless branches. And if they wouldn't be cut off, they would drain the strength and the energy from the, from the rest of the vine and impact the fruitfulness of other branches. So they had to be purged or removed. But he would also prune or trim the fruitful branches so that they would be even more healthy, more fruitful. And of course, this was a painful process for the, that living branch to undergo. But in the aftermath of the pruning, it would lead to greater health and, and growth and fruitfulness in the healthy branches. And then finally, they understood that there was fruit produced by the branches of the vine. And any knowledgeable person understood this, that healthy branches produced fruit. It was normal. It was natural for healthy branches to produce if they were truly healthy. This fruit, of course, came in varying degrees. There was massive amounts of fruit in certain branches. Then there was moderate 
fruit in other branches that were healthy. And then there was minuscule fruit in other branches as well. But one thing that everyone understood in that agrarian culture was that there was no such thing as a healthy branch that did not produce its fruit. No such thing. It's not hard to see then the connection, right? It's not, it's not hard to see what Jesus is getting at here. This is the way it is when it comes to the Christian life, is Jesus' point. This is what, the way that it is when it comes to being a follower of Jesus and really for biblical Christianity. See, when you think about your adoption brothers, know this. Your heavenly father is absolutely thrilled and happy that you are part of his family if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus and you've turned from your sins. He's absolutely happy that we're a part of his family. But he saved us so that we would also serve him. That we would also do good works in the power of the Spirit. He saved us to serve. He saved us that we would be fruitful Christians. And according to God's word, a true Christian will produce inevitably, naturally, necessarily produce fruit in the Christian life. In fact, fruit bearing is a regular petition in Paul's prayers. Write this passage down, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 9 where he writes to these believers and he says, and so from the day we heard, and he's speaking about their faith, from the day we heard of your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, and listen to this, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul says it pleases the Lord Jesus that you bear spiritual fruit, Colossian believers. It is pleasing to the Lord that you increase in the knowledge of God and that you do good works for his glory. And he prays for them accordingly. And then write down Philippians chapter 1 and verse 9. He says this, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And then Philippians 1.11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Paul says to the Philippian believers, guys, I'm praying for you because God is glorified and he receives praise and worship when you are a fruit-bearing believer. When you bear much fruit for his glory. And so this is what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus wants his disciples to, to get this. That in his absence, he wants them to live and carry out his work in a victorious, fruitful manner. And so how does he encourage them to do so? And how does he encourage us to do so? Because remember, these are timeless principles that are not only applicable to Jesus' followers then, they are also applicable in some way, shape, or form to us or for us who are believers now in this present day and age. Timeless principles for us to glean here from what Jesus says to his disciples. And so first of all, write this down. We learn in our text and from Jesus' words that we need to be sure that we're truly connected to Christ. Be sure, brothers, and be sure, listeners, that you're truly connected to Jesus. Not every church-going person is. Not every person who gives offerings is. Not every person who um, is involved in a church is. Not every person who serves in the church is. Not every person who sits under good, strong teaching over the years is necessarily truly connected, vitally connected to Jesus Christ, organically, spiritually connected to Jesus Christ. Haven't we learned that in our experience with, from the interaction that we have with family members, extended family members, friends, people that used to be here perhaps at Compass Bible Church and now they're nowhere to be found? You can be physically here and not really be vitally connected to Jesus in a saving way, in an ongoing relationship with him. Notice what Jesus says in verse 1. I am the true vine. Literally, 
I myself am the one and only vine, not a vine, but the true vine. There is no other, Jesus says. I myself am the only genuine, vital, indispensable life source, life giver, life sustainer. I myself am the only true vine. All other vines are, count, are false and counterfeit. We may de derive comfort and we may derive strength from maybe materialism and a prosperous uh, situation that we might currently have. We might derive um, comfort and even uh, confidence from having calm circumstances or even having the right kinds of people around us. But Jesus says, I am the true vine. I am the, the only life source. Everything else is sinking sand. Everything else is a slippery slope. Everything else is quickly fleeting. Now notice, I am the true vine, verse 1, and my father is the, the vine dresser. Every branch in me, and, and don't make the mistake, by the way, here of taking the metaphor there too far that Jesus is going to elaborate on here. Of equating the, the in me there in verse 2 as the same thing as, as, as the doctrine of union with Christ. That's not what this is saying here. And that's going to become more and more evident by the context here. You see, it's not only the, the etymology of words or language that determines meaning in the biblical text. But a good, a good approach in hermeneutics is to remember this, that usage and context, context, context determines meaning in a text. Not just the etymology of a word. And so we're going to see that there's something else going on here that Jesus is getting at. This is not about losing your salvation. So keep reading. He says in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. See, he's talking about no fruit people. People who may claim to be connected to Jesus. People who may, who may even profess to believe in Jesus. People who might even associate with Jesus or even with Jesus' church. But they are fruitless. That's what he's talking about here. He adds, and every branch that does, that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Again, the Father is continually doing two things here. He's, he's purging unfruitful branches, and he's pruning fruitful ones. He's purging branches that are dead and lifeless and unfruitful. He's pruning branches that are bearing fruit so that they produce even more fruit. But someone might look at these verses, and many have, and have drawn wrong conclusions. Someone might, at this point, inevitably ask, is Jesus saying that someone can actually lose their salvation here? And the answer, brothers, is, is no. That's not even Jesus' point. That's not even Jesus' primary purpose for putting this together for his disciples, in fact, if that was, that would contradict other clear scriptures which speak about the security of the believer, wouldn't it? It would be a contradiction to other biblical texts. For example, do you recall what Jesus said earlier in John chapter 6, verse 39? There he said, this is the will of, of him, God the Father, who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. John chapter 6, verse 39. Does it sound to you there like Jesus could actually lose the sheep? No. In John chapter 10, verse 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then John 10, 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Clear or unclear? Pretty clear, isn't it? Pretty clear. And double whammy there. Jesus says, not only do I protect them so that I lose none of them, but on top of that, my father, throw in the father. He protects the sheep, right? And throw in there, if you will, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, the Holy Spirit who is the down payment of our sure, certain inheritance. We are protected by the power of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, we're being guarded by the power of God through faith 
for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Listen, that's highlighting the certainty of our salvation. That as mighty as God is, as powerful as God is, so certain is our salvation. Amen? Because it's in the Father's hand. I forget who said that. If my salvation was in my hands to lose every single day, I would lose it every single moment of the day. If it was in our hands to lose, but it's not. All of those passages and many others are pretty definitive that whom God has redeemed cannot lose their salvation. And I don't even think that that's the point of what Jesus is saying there. In fact, look at our text again. In John 15, verse 3, he assures them that they belong to him. He says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And then back in John chapter 13, he said the same thing, remember? He said, you are already clean, but not all of you. Speaking of Judas Iscariot, who was not a genuine branch, who was not a true branch. And then in chapter 15, verse 11, look there. 15.11, he tells them why he's even getting into this whole instruction about vines and branches and vine dressers and fruit. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Jesus says, I'm getting into this because I want you to have fullness of joy. I want you to rejoice in me. Jesus is instructing and challenging them with strong words, not so that they first and foremost doubt whether they are real, but so that they might have fullness of joy. Listen, the text is about assuring his disciples that they belong to him. But brothers, listen to this also. Make no mistake. He also wants them to be absolutely aware of fruit bearing in their lives. Their assurance that they belong to Jesus must not lead them to be passive, but to be fruitful in, in service. And it's by finding security in his love. He'll talk about that in a bit. By finding security in his love that they will be catapulted all the more towards greater fruitfulness for him. This is the heart of the true believer. Father, why would I want to sin against you when you've been so loving, so good, so kind to me? I want all the more to be zealous for good deeds. I want to serve you. I want to be holy like Jesus. I want to hate the world all the more. That's the heart of the true believer. The more that we are assured of his love for us, the more we're catapulted towards greater fruitfulness. And the reason why I say that he wants them to be fruitful and this is a, also a word of caution for them as his disciples is because you need to think about this. Just, this is very important. Remember what just happened in the upper room. Who just exited the upper room? Judas Iscariot. And so Jesus is saying these things and teaching these things within the, against the backdrop, if you want to put it that way, of the defection of Judas Iscariot. That is the background. You think what just, that would, even with what just happened with Judas doing what he did and then Jesus telling the disciples, all of you, in fact, are going to desert me in some capacity or another. You think that that hasn't left an impression on them? Of course it has. Judas was a guy who identified himself with Jesus, physically was around Jesus, benefited from Jesus' kindness to him, even was trusted by Jesus and the disciples to carry around the money bag. He was the accountant of the group. And yet the whole time, he wasn't a true, genuine branch. He proved that by his lack of fruitfulness, that he wasn't a true follower of Jesus. And so in essence, Jesus' message here is, make sure that you're really vitally connected to me. Case in point, Judas Iscariot. Look at what happened with him. And my father is about the business of ensuring that, Jesus says. He is pruning. In fact, quite soon that weekend, these disciples themselves are going to undergo a divine pruning. They will, they will come out on the other side after being pruned more and more ready to be, bear more fruit and to be about the mission of the gospel, as we see in the book of Acts. Same with us, brothers. Same with us. Pruning 
is a painful process, isn't it? It's a painful process. Some of us are going through it, even in the present, more than others. But all of us, to some extent or another, that is the Christian life. We are secure in Christ, but there's a constant process of of sanctification that is taking place, of purging, of purifying. It's a necessary process that the Father is doing through His Holy Spirit. And He does it because He loves us. It's not because He's judging us. Unless you're suffering consequences because of your own sin, right? Then there's spiritual spanking that is taking place in your life, perhaps. But because God loves us, he, he purges us and prunes us so that we bear more fruit for him. He cuts and purifies. How does he do that? Well, he does it primarily through the correction from the word of God, doesn't he? When you read scripture and you meditate upon scripture, you're confronted and exhorted and, and admonished by the scripture itself as the spirit of God takes the scriptures and applies them to your heart and life and exposes your sin. Like James 1 says, that the word of God is like a mirror that exposes who we are before the, the majesty and, and, the, and the glory of God so that we would act and, and deal with our sin in the power of the spirit. So we're perched through the correction from the word of God, private and public. When you sit under good preaching and, and teaching, I hope that that's why you come to church as well. Yes, to be encouraged, but also to be exposed. Why? So that you might see the problem, so that you might address it, that you might be more of a fruitful man of God. Amen? So it's through the Word. How else does He purge us and prune us? Well, definitely through trials and adversity. I think COVID did that for us on a personal level, as families, as a collective local body, as the true church, COVID adversity and trials connected to that whole thing really was a, a triaging of the church. I think God was pruning the true church. I think it happens also that he prunes us through his fatherly discipline when we sin. When we're living in known unrepentant sin, Hebrews chapter 12 speaks of this. It speaks of this painful rather than pleasant process called this is the discipline of the father but he says this might be painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful ready for this fruit of righteousness hebrews chapter 12 god prunes and purges and purifies us that we might reflect his son that we might reflect his righteous character all the more and so there is an embedded caution for all of us here to do what to examine ourselves, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. To examine ourselves, to make sure that you're truly connected to Christ in a vital, intimate relationship. Is that you tonight? Because I can tell you, and I, we can sit here for the rest of the week and talk about the horror stories, and you can share some with me, of the individuals who basically were never real who were superficial, who were around, even around God's people in the church for all of the wrong reasons, but not because they were vitally connected in a relationship to Jesus Christ, not because they had truly transferred trust from self and all of your resources and works and all of that, and you had transferred trust to Jesus Christ alone, His person and His redemptive work on your behalf. Is that you tonight? And for those of us who are saved for those of us who have trusted in Christ, here's a second point here. We're encouraged here, secondly, to be striving to abide in Christ. You may be a believer here tonight as I am, but we are exhorted as the disciples were, true followers of Jesus there 2,000 years ago, to be striving to abide in Christ. And I use that word right there, brothers, intentionally, striving because is it easy to abide in Jesus? No. There's resistance from our three deadly enemies, the flesh, the world, and the devil. Amen? Constant resistance. Constant struggle. It's not easy to abide in him. But Jesus says in verse 4, commands them, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, verse 5. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do some things. Is that what it says, brothers? Uh-uh, not in my ESV. 
Apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. That last verse there in verse 6, case in point, before their very eyes, the dead branch of Judas Iscariot had just exited that upper room, right? They had a perfect example of that there. Further notice here that even though Jesus' disciples belong to him, there is an ongoing responsibility that they have. What is that? To abide in, in Jesus. They are not to be passive. They are not to be lethargic. They are not to think that there's neutrality in their, their, their following of Jesus. There is no neutrality. You're either proactively, purposefully making progress, moving forward, or you are, you are backsliding in the Christian life. If you're a genuine believer. So Jesus doesn't want them to be passive, but proactive. Giving maximum effort in their relationship with him. That exhortation there in verse 4, abide in me, is, a, is in the imperative mood. Which means it's a, it's a command for them to obey. What's an imperative? Is it, a, is it optional? Is it a suggestion? Hey, if you guys really want to get a lot of stuff done and be fruitful, hey, I have a suggestion for you. Please abide in me. No, this is, a, this is a command. This is not take it or leave it. This is not, if you guys feel like it or not, if it feels good to you. This is not multiple choice. Pick one of the four. This is do this. This is absolutely urgent for you to do the disciples. It's a command. Abide in me. In fact, if they're going to bear fruit for him, they won't be able to do it unless they abide in, in him. Look at verse 4 again. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Look at verse 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You say, oh, Pastor Kempis, I'm sensing the sense of urgency in this matter. So what does it mean to abide? What does that mean? Well, it literally means to, to remain or to stay in Christ. To remain or stay in Him. You're not just passing through in your relationship with Jesus. You're not just visiting him occasionally. Christ is your very home. Christ, in the words of, of Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, he is our life. He is everything to us. And in the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for to me to live is what? Christ and to die is gain. It's, Christ is everything. It means that Christ is your abode. Christ is your home. Christ is the one that you run to. Write these words down. It means that you are devoted to Jesus. It means that you are dependent on Jesus. It means that you draw near to Jesus for all that you need. You're devoted to Jesus, you're dependent on Jesus, and you draw near to Jesus for all that you need, for your guidance, for your direction, for your encouragement, for your endurance, for your joy, for your vitality. In the midst of the struggles of the godly man, this is our fight and this is our plight, brothers, that we would be devoted, dependent, and constantly drawing near to Jesus. And he invites us to do so. Abiding is all about cultivating a vital, ongoing, intimate relationship with Jesus through the word and prayer. Because he's not physic physically, visibly present with us, but he guides us and directs us through his word and even through his people as others come alongside of us and encourage us in this ongoing, vital relationship with Jesus called abiding in him. It's not just knowing facts about Jesus, but knowing Jesus personally and in an ongoing experience on an ongoing basis. Christianity is not about experientialism, right? But it is a religion of experience, the one true religion of experience. There is an ongoing relationship that we have with Jesus, so it's experiential knowledge, not just intellectual knowledge, knowing facts about Jesus, where you know about Jesus, but you don't, you don't know Jesus himself, so that you abide in him in a vital, intimate relationship. Abide in me, he says. This speaks to the centrality of Jesus in our lives. This speaks to the authority of Jesus in our lives. This speaks to the sufficiency of Jesus in our lives. This speaks to the supremacy of Jesus in our lives, that he's everything. 
How important is it to abide in Jesus? He says, if you're not doing so, you're going to be rendered ineffective and unfruitful. In the same way that a detached branch has lost its life source and thus its ability to produce fruit. So it is with the Christian who ceases to abide in Jesus. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. Literally, that verse 5, for apart from me, you are not able to do not one thing is the sense. That's the Greek language. Not one thing in a way that pleases the Lord. Many of us are doing things, even perhaps service. But it's not from the heart. It's not from a, out of a relationship of abiding with Christ. So therefore, it doesn't please the Lord. Because your heart's not there where it should be in an ongoing love relationship with Christ. You're going through the motions. You're passive. You're lethargic. Maybe you're doing service even for other reasons, not being motivated by the exaltation of Jesus. But it's other things that are motivating you. And so listen, Jesus is also saying here that there is no such thing as a lifeless, fruitless Christian who is abiding in him. He taught this also by means of the parable of the four soils during his lifetime, didn't he? Remember the four soils? There's only one good soil, the fourth soil, which produced fruit. He says some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. Only the fourth soil which produced fruit was real and genuine and commended by Jesus. Jesus wants us to be that, that good soil that produces. And so I, I ask you tonight, are you, are, you, are you producing fruit, brother in Christ, because you're abiding in Christ? Are you bearing much fruit and thus being pleasing to the Lord? You say, Pastor Kempis, is fruit what saves a person? No. No. The root of our justification, make no mistake about it, is the person and the justifying work, the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said it is what? Finished. There's a difference, however, between the root and the fruit. The fruit of our justification are the inevitable, natural, and necessary spirit-empowered works that should now be evident in your life if you're truly a branch that is abiding in Christ. So are you aiming to bear much fruit for the Lord Jesus? You ask, well, what does this look like in the Christian life? I'm glad you asked. This is where we're going to go next in the rest of our passage. So write this down thirdly. We must be diligent to bearing much fruit. We must be diligent to bearing much fruit. And this will happen as we abide closely with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as we abide in Christ that there will be some wonderful fruit. First subpoint, as we had some last week, there will be the fruit of answered prayer. There will be the fruit of answered prayer. You say, I thought... Pastor Kempis, that we covered that last week. We did, but Jesus goes there again. But this time, he goes there by mentioning prayer, listen, in connection with abiding in him. That there's a correlation, a connection between answered prayer and our petitions before God that honor him and abiding in Jesus. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me, this vital, intimate relationship with me, if you're cultivating this relationship with me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Kind of reminds us of John chapter 14, verse 13, doesn't it? Whatever you ask in, in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Notice that there's a, a connection, a correlation between abiding and asking for things that are consistent with who Jesus is and what his will is for our lives. Look down in verse 16. Or, or yeah, in verse 16. You did not choose me. Or verse 6, I'm sorry. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. You see that? Should abide. And he says, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. 
There's a correlation between walking closely with Christ and this leading to, to, to prayers which honor him and that are sure to be answered because they're consistent with his will. And they're not going to be answered perhaps in the manner in which we think that they're going to be answered. Now, this doesn't mean also, as I said last week, remain close to me so that I can give you whatever you want. No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that. But isn't it true, brothers, that when we are in this ongoing relationship with Jesus through his word, there's this sense in which our prayers are, are, are being shaped and directed by the priorities of Christ as revealed in his word. Have you ever seen that in your life? You're so saturated with spending time with Jesus through his word, that your, your prayers really become very biblical prayers and saturated with what God wants rather than what you want in life, as you define it. I have felt that in my experience walking with the Lord. I have felt those moments where there is that abiding going on, and I find myself even asking things that are contrary to what in my own nature I would ask for. I don't know about you, but at the outset of my Christian life, I was always praying, it seemed, for, for comfort and ease. Oh, Lord, I can't handle that trial as a college student. Oh, Lord, as a young married, I can't handle uh, now being a dad. Lord, take it away or make it easier. Make it more comfortable for me. How many of you used to do that early on in your Christian world? Don't lie the rest of you guys. Come on. <laughs> my prayers were fundamentally for comfort and ease. In retrospect, and then as I've grown over the years, by God's grace, I found myself praying things like these. Lord, if you want me to suffer this way, may your will be done. <laughs> what? If you want this difficult person to be in my life, causing me hurt and pain so that I become more like Jesus, Lord, so be it. Not my will, but yours be done. You find yourself praying like that sometimes? Oh, yeah. And of course, he answers those prayers. That's not of us praying that way, brothers. No, it's this, instead it's this vital relationship with Jesus that leads us to pray that way, regardless of comfort and ease, to pray for the will of God to be done in our lives so that there is, there's purging going on so that we become more and more like Christ and pray prayers that are in accordance with his will. So when we are walking closely with Christ, our prayers are shaped by that relationship. And there's the, the fruit of answered prayer. Second sub-point, sub there's the fruit of confident assurance. There's the fruit of confident assurance. Verse 8, he says, By this my Father is, is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Even now, the highest priority of the Lord Jesus, as it's been in the Gospel of Mark, is that his Father will be glorified. And Jesus is not saying here, again, you're saved by your fruit or that only as you, as you show fruit, then will you truly show that you are saved. He's not teaching work salvation here. What Jesus is saying is that as you bear fruit, you demonstrate, you give evidence that you are truly his followers. And the world watches and there's glory that is being given to the Father. Because you're showing and demonstrating what a true disciple looks like. Walking in righteousness. And also this leads to a sense of confident assurance that you belong to him. See, there's a, there's a difference between the security of the believer and the assurance of the believer, right? There's a difference between the security of the believer and the assurance of the believer. The security of the believer is an, is an objective reality. What do we mean by that? It's, it's outside of us. It's outside of anything you've done or you will do in the Christian life. The security of the believer is based upon what God has done in and through his son, not in any way, shape, or form what you have done, are doing in the present, or will do in the future, right? If you are a Christian today, you are secure in, in Christ, regardless of your performance, if you are genuinely a branch that is bearing fruit, even if little by little, in baby steps, you are bearing fruit. If you are in Christ, you're secure in him. Now, the assurance of the believer is a, is a subjective reality. 
If the, the security of the believer is an objective reality outside of anything that you do, your performance, the assurance of the believer is a subjective reality. Though you may be secure in Jesus, if you're truly a Christian, you may not always feel assured that you belong to Him. And this could be for many different reasons. What are some of those? Maybe you have a misinformed conscience as a believer. A conscience that is not informed by the, by the truth. A conscience that condemns you. A conscience that drives you to be guilt-ridden because you're not being informed by the truth of the Word of God and by your standing in Christ. I'm not talking about a guilty conscience because you're living in known unrepentant sin. You're definitely not going to feel assured in your salvation if you're living in sin, right? Your Father is going to continue to squeeze you until you confess your sin and you come clean before Him and then before somebody that you trust and love and you're able to talk to them about what's going on in your life. So it could be because of a misinformed conscience that you don't feel assured in your salvation. It could be because you're living in known unrepentant sin. You're living a life of compromise and you, and you know it. You definitely won't feel sure of your salvation in that situation. There may be many reasons why you don't feel forgiven and reconciled to God. But what Jesus is saying here is that when you're pursuing an ongoing, vital, and intimate relationship with Him, there's the confident assurance that you belong to Him, and in doing so, you glorify God. I think it's this whole confident assurance. That's the whole point of the, of the epistle of 1 John. People go to that particular epistle of 1 John, tests to see if you're really, really real. You know, that might be definitely an application, an implication. But sometimes that might lead to some kind of navel-gazing, right? Every single day of your life. Well, at what point am I, really, am I really performing at an optimum level so that I actually feel assured of my salvation? At what point does that happen? No, I think 1 John, the point, he gives it to us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. He says, I write these things so that your joy may be made full or complete. John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you might find joy in your salvation. And of course, if they fail the tests in 1 John, then they can be drawn to the Lord and realize, I need to trust in Jesus genuinely so that I might have fullness of joy. That's his point. John wants you to have confident assurance that you belong to Jesus and find joy in that relationship with him. I think it's the same thing with Jesus here. There's also the fruit of an ever-increasing love, thirdly. There's also the fruit of an ever-increasing love. Various verses which emphasize this. Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. This is where it begins, right? If you don't abide in Christ's love for you, you're not going to be fueled to love other people and follow the example of Christ. You won't. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Gee, who is Jesus talking about there? Himself. That's what he's going to do. That's how much he loves them. He's going to go to the cross and give them the prime example of what of his love for them. Verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. You think that Jesus is trying to make a point here? Jesus has returned to this theme of love again and again and again, brothers, and perhaps it is because he knows that we are hard-hearted people, including beginning with his disciples then, that we have a difficult time fleshing out biblical, genuine, sincere, forgiving, reconciling kind of love for one another. It says, if you're abiding in Christ, there will be an ever-increasing love in your life. A desire to love other people as Christ has loved you. So Jesus says, listen, the Father loves me. I love you. I'm going to the cross to demonstrate my love for you. Thus, you need to abide in my love and love one another as I have loved you. This is always the motivation for us to love others and lay down our lives for them. And this is also the motivation for our service. I love Compass Bible Church. And I love how I see so many saints here serving Jesus at a high level. But like any conservative, strong, healthy church like Compass, 
The danger for us is not to be about loving service. Not to be about grateful service. To go through the motions and even serve like, a, like the Martha syndrome. You know what I mean? And run around. Jesus didn't, didn't, didn't correct her service. He corrected her heart disposition. And her scatteredness. And her misplaced priorities at that moment. And so we need to be very careful, brothers, that there's an ever-increasing love as we're abiding in Jesus so that even our, our service for one another and even in our small groups is motivated by the love that Christ has for us and we are fervently caring for one another on a deep level. Finally, there's also the fruit of loving obedience. Loving obedience. I won't belabor this one. We went, looked at this last week. But look at verse 10. If you, if you keep my commandments, in other words, obey, adhere to, appropriate, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. See the connection and the correlation there between obedience and, and love? That's why it's loving obedience down in verse 14. Notice there, you are my friends. If you do what I command you, Obedience and abiding go in hand in hand. Obedience, abiding, and love go hand in hand. In fact, in that scary passage at the conclusion of the greatest sermon ever preached in Matthew 7, do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 21? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who what? Who what, brothers? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 7, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never, what? Knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus says, on that day, people will claim to have done great things for me. They will even have orthodox doctrine. They will even claim to, to believe in Jesus, right? Like the demons in James chapter 2, verse 19, that says, where it says that the demons even believe and they, and they shudder, but they still live as rebel beings, don't they? They don't repent. The demons have great theology, better theology than us. But they neither love Christ nor obey him. They continue in their rebellion. Then Jesus adds in Matthew 7, verse 24, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, who obeys me, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, does not obey them, does not appropriate them to his life, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Is Jesus talking there again about work salvation? No. What he's saying is, is that those who are genuinely his followers will give evidence that of this natural, necessary fruit that shows that they have a transformed heart. And it will lead to obedience, loving obedience in their lives. So we are not saved by our good works, but we are saved unto good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are his workmanship, believers. We are God's workmanship, poema, masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for or unto good works. Huge, right? The prepositional phrases there are huge. It doesn't say by our good works. It says we are to be people who are devoted to good works for or unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what's the point of all of this? Brothers, there are no true followers of Jesus who bear no fruit whatsoever. Some of you are, are massive fruit bearers. <laughs> Praise God for you. You bear more fruit than some of us pastors. Some of you are, are moderate fruit bearers. Keep striving forward, brothers. Keep excelling still more. Some of you are minuscule fruit bearers, right? Listen, press on by the grace of God. Be a disciple who is a fruit bearer at a, at a high level for your king, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that the Father is glorified in that. 
But every one of us who are true followers of Christ should be true uh, fruit bearers. And the only one who will be able to bear much fruit for God is the one who abides much in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we going to do this perfectly, brothers? No. How many of us in here are perfect fruit bearers right now? Right? Oh, I saw that. All right. Just wanted to get my attention. <laughs> None of us are perfect. Every single one, one of us are weak. Right? We fail. Yes, indeed, every single moment of the day we fail even. But in those moments of weakness and failure, I want you to remember the words of that wonderful song that I love to sing sometimes, He Will Hold Me Fast. You ever heard of that song? He Will Hold Me Fast. Listen to the words. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hope through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold, he must hold me fast. He will hold me fast, he will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight, Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost, his promises shall last. But by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. For my life he bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life. He will hold me fast. Tis my faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold you fast. Amen? Let's pray, brothers. Gracious Heavenly Father. Father, our path may be filled with fog and dark valleys. Even some of us might be going through those even now as we've listened to this message. Sometimes our trials and troubles are like great storms in our lives. Father, help us to remember that you will hold us fast and that if we truly, coupled with that, want to be faithful servants of yours, zealous for good deeds, pursuing holiness, fruit bearers, help us to be those who abide much in your son, who love him, who are with him daily, even throughout the day, that we would be men who are God-conscious, aware of your presence in our thoughts and in our lives, so that it might drive our attitudes, our heart meditations, and even the way we treat others and the way that we even are on mission for the sake of Christ. Help us to be men who abide in Jesus much, the true vine we pray in Christ's name. Amen.